0: If you're interested in the ideas and discussions we raise here on the Origins Podcast, you might consider joining the Origins Project Foundation on their travel adventure to Iceland and Greenland, September 19th to October 2nd, to witness the Northern Lights, to see a landscape in peril due to the effects of climate change, and discuss it with speakers like Ian McEwan, the well-known novelist, Ray Dolan, neuroscientist, and me, Lawrence Krauss. Go to www.originsprojectfoundation.org for more information. Hello, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. In this episode, I'll talk to Sheldon Glashow, Nobel laureate in physics, and a key part of what I've called the greatest story ever told so far. For his work on unifying the weak and electromagnetic interactions, which are two of the four fundamental forces in nature, Shelley himself has been a leading force in particle physics over the last 50 years, making many contributions, including the proposal that new quarks existed that were discovered. During that time, he's often served as a spokesman for the field. Personally, he's been one of my own mentors as well as the collaborator at MIT and Harvard. And he first told me how to tell the difference between formalism and physics. This conversation at Shelley's home gave me the opportunity to ask about his personal experiences in physics, which will be fascinating to anyone who wants a new perspective on how fundamental physics evolved in the last century. We talked about what got him into physics as a young man in, in New York City and what it was like working with the greatest physicists of the last century. We then move on to a discussion of the state of modern physics and the possibilities for the future of science. Patreon subscribers can find the full video of all of our programs as soon as they're released at patreon.com slash origins podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. Shelley, it's great to be with you here and it, what's really neat for me is uh, I've known you for almost 40 years, but now I can ask you questions that I don't think I've ever asked you. Like first, why, why did why physics? What what got you interested in science in the first place?
1: Uh, <laughs> this is a question that I've I've thought about many times, and it's not clear that the answer I give now is the same as it sure is what I gave 10 or 20 yeah. or 30 yeah. years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, but as when I was quite young, uh, I had a lot of friends, but I was on the other hand. Uh, bit fat, and I wore glasses from the time that I was six. Uh-huh. So I wasn't really good at at uh, playing baseball. I was usually <laughs> the last to be chosen to yeah. be on the team, and uh-huh. I was spending a lot of time uh, reading, and reading science fiction in uh-huh. particular, and getting interested in science, Partly through my brothers who mm. were studying for medical school and dental school,
0: ah, uh, making their mothers very happy.
1: Yeah, that <laughs> uh, it didn't spread to me. Uh, when, the, when the time, when my time came, my father said, are "You're you, you going to be a doctor or a dentist." And I said, "No, I'm going to be a college professor. I'm going to teach physics." And my father said, well, if you want to do science, why don't you become a doctor and do science in your in your spare time? Yeah. And wife. I told him it didn't work that way.
0: Yeah, my mother, when I first came to Harvard, my mom, I remember calling my, my, my wife at the time up and saying he can still go to medical school. He can still go to medical right. school. It took a long time. But you knew, so you knew you wanted to be a college professor even... In high school? Well, that was in high
1: school, but long before high school, in in when in junior high, I already was uh, very much interested in chemistry through chemistry sets. Yeah, sure. Uh, I was first interested in biology w- using my brother's microscope. when uh-huh. He was off fighting Germans in, in the Second uh- World War. Oh. So I was stuck home with his microscope, and I looked at uh, water that I collected from the Hudson River and saw all kinds of... Foul organisms there and cultivated uh, what what were they called protozoans, plephorisma, paramecia. Yeah, Yeah, I remember uh, that. Things like that and had a lot of fun with biology. Of course, those were the days that one in high school they first taught uh, biology, which fitted with me. Then it was chemistry, then it was physics. When it came to chemistry, I uh, had something more than a chemistry set. My father built for me a little chem lab in the basement oh wow where i could do all sorts of wonderful things that i should not have done <laughs> mostly <laughs> selenium i became a selenium chemist oh really yeah i had a lot of fun with that element it's the only element that smells like horseradish oh okay in all its compounds it's is there any
0: selenium in horseradish no Oh, okay. Wow, that's great. Okay. And then I got contacted
1: by the. I published an article in a, a science magazine for teenagers called Chemistry Magazine, put out by the Science Talent Search people. Oh, okay. Science Service. Yeah. And uh, they uh, apparently they read it in South Dakota, and they told they, I got invited to consult on alkali disease which is a disease of cattle. Oh, okay. Cattle that are attracted to plants that concentrate Uh, selenium selenium and (laughs) and get some terrible disease. But I told them, no, I'm just a high school kid. I don't (laughs) think I can help you
0: much. (laughs) There's a whole bunch of things that been, that make come to mind based on that. But first, your brother had a microscope, so he was already the one who was off going fighting in Germany. He, 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 he had knew he wanted to be a doctor. He, he was, was well,
1: Yeah, the doctor, the, the doctor to be was 14 years older than I was. Oh, okay. And the, the dentist to be was already practicing. He was 18 years. Oh, older okay. Than so, was, I.
0: but did, did they influence you? I mean, I had my brother was three years older, but I remember I was really influenced by him. In, in a number of things, although he didn't he didn't go into science eventually. But did did you sort of did their interest in science play off on you at all or not? A,
1: a little bit. I I remember the uh, my brother Sam explaining to me how when an airplane dropped a bomb, it had to swerve away uh-huh. because otherwise the bomb would explode just <laughs> yeah. under the airplane. <laughs> yeah, and, and things okay, like that. physics. So okay. physics I, exactly.
0: I, now, so, but since you were already an accomplished. Chemist, uh, selenium chemists, and biology. No, that was
1: my junior year. Then, okay. Then, we, what... then I took a physics course. But wait, the physics instruction. The, I even remember the name of the author of the physics textbook. Mm-hmm. It was a Mister Dull. <laughs> And the <laughs> physics book was extraordinarily dull. Uh-huh. And I got tired trying to memorize the seven basic uh-huh. tools. I can much more easily remember the seven dwarfs <laughs> than the seven basic <laughs> tools. Uh, so I, we, we, uh, we learned physics by ourselves, me uh, and uh, my friends, uh, including Steven Weinberg and uh, Gary Feinberg, yes. both of whom became... Became well-known physicists, yes. and, and,
0: and as is well-known... What still is remarkable to me is that is that, uh, for, for, for the audience, is that you and Steve were in high school together, and not only be, both became well-known physicists, but went off in separate directions and totally independently developed the basis of what is now the standard model of physics, for which you both won the Nobel Prize at the same time. I think it's just such an amazing...
1: It was an amazing story.
0: Yeah, it really is. <clears throat> and in, in fact, uh, just to add
1: some things that other people don't really know, Steve's father, uh, when we applied to schools, hmm. uh, I had been and Steve were both accepted to uh, well, City College, which was an obligatory uh, yeah. application. But we were also accepted to Princeton, Cornell, and
0: MIT. Ah, I what? had I was turned down to Harvard. Oh, interesting. Okay, for which you later became a professor. That's that, great. So was I it was in graduate school, by the way, and then, then I went to work there. But oh, why I, did you? What, I, I was turned down to their graduate, Princeton graduate school. Okay, so we both share that. I <laughs> was also turned down to Princeton graduate school, so we share that. But but so why did you choose Cornell? Well, I'm well, jumping around, yeah, but why the, Cornell? Because, well, Steve's father was
1: kind enough to drive the two of us huh. <coughs> to these three schools. Because oh. we all had the same uh, decision to make. Oh, okay. And when when we went to Princeton, uh, I think it was before there were girls at Princeton. Oh, uh, uh, okay. And the Princeton uh, guys would dress up in these filthy black costumes to dinner oh, to try okay. to imitate I mean- how things were at Cambridge and Oxford. sure, sure. Then we went to Cornell, which was so friendly and so wonderful. And for the first time in my life, uh, I could see things like uh, chickens and cows that were still alive, but
0: not not on the plate. Yeah, well, and Cornell was originally an agricultural college, wasn't it, by the way? It was, and (laughs) a
1: major part of it uh, was and remains. Uh, And then we went to MIT, and MIT is MIT, so we chose Cornell.
0: Oh, okay, that's neat. But you so it was your interest, it was your friends that got you interested in. I mean, your mutual friendship we, that got you interested in physics. School didn't, it wasn't
1: school that got in, us into in, in spite of school. You and it you, was in you, spite of school, it was the school that brought us together. It was the school hmm. that brought me together with somebody uh, who also became a well known physicist. Uh, uh, name I forget at the moment, but he taught me calculus in the lunchroom. Oh, okay, so well. I had a little. Bit of calculus okay. already. Also, that's uh, a big help. Supplemented by, it was hard to find the right books. You, we, we would go to. Uh, there was a wonderful thing in New York in those days. It was called Fourth Avenue. Fourth Avenue had uh, used bookshops when mm-hmm. there were such things as mm-hmm. used bookshops. Hundreds of them. So he would hang out there buying old physics textbooks and uh, mathematics books.
0: Well, uh, you know, the, that's well. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yeah, it's funny because my interest in, in science came from, in this case, a neighbor who's who an engineer, but and the fact that my mother made the mistake of telling me that doctors were scientists, so I got interested in science. And by the time I discovered in high school that doctors weren't always scientists, it was too quite late. the contrary, exactly. And and my mother was yeah very very disappointed in in uh, in in yeah for a long time in in me and that. But what you know, the fact you said something that, that reminds me so. In those days, and for me too, it w- it was sort of biology, chemistry, then physics, which is the exact opposite way in some ways from which it should be taught. As we know, our both our late friend Leon Letterman, um, indeed, it worked very hard, at least in Chicago and other places, saying that you know it should be the. A lot of people never get nowadays. A lot of students never even get to physics, right? They just they start with biology. Maybe they'll do a chemistry class, and they won't. They won't even get to physics, whereas, of course, physics is the basis of chemistry. Chemistry is the basis of biology. And the problem with learning the opposite order is you tend to learn things by rote rather than trying to figure out why things are the way they are at that basis. And uh, and so I don't know how many places have switched. To well,
1: be- it's interesting you ask, because uh, I was at some point when my uh, grandkids were going to school, in uh, one of them in, uh, what's it called, uh, Suburb of Boston, uh, <laughs> Wellesley. Yeah, uh, I was. Uh, I, I gave a talk to the uh, class. Mm-hmm. It might have been junior high school. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I gave a talk to the class. It was high school. Uh, about how important it was to teach physics, then chemistry, and and mm-hmm. uh, th- mm-hmm. start with uh, f- with physics, physics so and that chem- chemistry could be understood. You, yeah, and then learn yeah. the chemistry, so mm-hmm. that biology exactly. could be understood. Uh, And uh, they looked at me strangely, and apparently uh, after my talk, it turned out that they were in the process, they had just made the decision to switch. To the to, to the order rational oh, uh, sequence, oh, and they but they w- hadn't announced it to the uh, so oh. yet, and they they thought it was a put up job that I was <laughs> trying to convince the administration to to do this, but they had already decided.
0: You know, I think that by the way, I do think I, I've talked to a lot of people about this. I think that's one of the people. There are many reasons people often get turned off by physics, but they get the perception that physics is hard. I, 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 even forgetting the mathematical aspect, because the the high school, the rationale that I always got for teaching biology first is that it's somehow something people can appreciate because it's organisms. they can see frogs. they can it's something they can relate to and it's therefore m- more friendly. but the but the impression the kids get is because it's taught last, somehow, it's harder. Than biology, and therefore it's you know it's something you should steer away from, and I, I I'm glad more and more places are switching. But
1: well, it's a difficult switch because yeah. uh, due to the fact that American math education is so poor, yeah, uh, it is true that physics is more mathematical than biology, mm-hmm. and they have to be familiar with algebra, not calculus, yeah. but certainly algebra, and yeah. the I. Things with X's and A's and B's and them that yeah. it, it, it baffles so many kids, and that's because it baffles their teachers as y- well. Yeah, that's right. So we don't have the right teaching structure yet. We don't mm. have the people who can who can teach a physics course without the uh, would, you know, mm-hmm. being very gentle with the algebra.
0: Yeah, and it's it's you have to be more comfortable. I, I mean, that's another part of the problem, and and in in that um, well. The last time I looked was a bunch of years ago. At least from middle school, well over ninety to ninety-five percent of middle school teachers had never really had who taught science hadn't didn't have a science degree. That's right, and they felt uncomfortable. And if they feel uncomfortable, that translates to the students. In order, you have to kind of be all comfortable with the field in order to move beyond the curriculum enough to be able to be gentle or to go outside, you know, what's in the book. And I think that's a and and you know I've gotten in trouble because we talk about how can we change that. And um, and I think what we have to do is ultimately recognize that that um, in a system, well, in supply and demand, right now, if you have a science degree, you can generally, or certainly it's always often been the case in the past, you can generally go out and get a, a job. And so in order to convince people with science degree to become teachers, it seems to me, you have to pay them more than people who don't have science degrees. You
1: have to pay them more, for sure.
0: Yeah, and that's, in the modern world, a lot of people have problems It's not as if science is more important than English. It's just for the same reason, frankly, why generally scientists in universities get paid more than English professors at universities. not that one's intrinsically more important. It's supply and demand and competition from outside academia, I think. And, and the
1: same is true with mathematics. And yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's essential to have... I remember in high school, although we, I was not terribly impressed by the science teachers, yeah. although this was Bronx High School of Science, yeah, yeah, which the was a- math teaching... Uh-huh. And the literature teaching were superb. Oh, okay, and, and,
0: and, literature too at the Bronx High School of Science. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. My be- my favorite, my best teachers were history. As it turned out, I, 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 yeah, I had, yeah, my physics class. I got, I enjoyed physics in spite of it, but, but it was, it was somewhat similar. In fact, I think that's a problem. With I was going to ask when you when you made the transition to college at Cornell. A lot of kids also get turned off of physics because first-year physics is, you know, inclined planes and sliding things, and it just doesn't seem... And, and unfortunately, also a lot of colleges, and maybe this wasn't the case so Cornell, a lot of colleges take sort of instructors and have them teach the first-year course instead of, instead of the faculty, instead of the people you want, or who are you going to be your mentors, the people who have some... Deep research interest in science, and that turns a lot of kids off too. I don't...
1: Yeah, well, in my case, things were different uh, for <clears throat> for calculus. I, I I took the first term calculus. So did uh, so did Steve, and we both discovered that we knew too much to to take <laughs> that course. So we had to skip along and take the third, <laughs> go from the first semester to the third <laughs> semester. Yeah. But the physics we had. Uh, what's the name of that physicist who put the uh, uh, the bound on cosmic ray energies, Gryson. Gryson, yes. was a very senior guy, and he was teaching our basic physics course, oh, okay. and he didn't hold our hands. Uh, oh. It was a real tough course, even though we were mathematically sophisticated compared to many others. Yeah. Uh, we had to struggle with that. And uh, so that was, one, we, it was we were thrown into serious science
0: for the so first people time. Who, so the people who made it through there were the ones who really uh, end up sort of wanting to...
1: Yeah, and, well, we had such a wonderful group of, of people, physics majors in my class. One was uh, uh, Tema, a young lady who yeah. became the wife of another physicist, uh, Henry Ehrenreich, uh-huh. uh, who was a professor at Harvard. Uh, another person became the head of NASA for uh-huh. uh, a number of years, uh, what was his name? He's a,
0: there were lots of heads and asses. He
1: recently died. A very, a very mm. well-known guy.
0: Yeah, it's, I I forgot I mean, It's not James not James Webb who was the head of the, the telescope. No, it wasn't Dan James Golden, Webb. Dan Golden is. I'm trying to remember name. It doesn't Dan matter. Dan
1: Golden. We were trying to hire as uh, as the president of BU much uh, much later. That's uh, okay. another story. After you, okay, well, we'll we might get, get there.
0: But so the bottom. I guess in your case, you it was really your peer group. I mean, I was going to ask when you had this. A lot of people, if the physics class was really difficult, you might have turned to chemistry or biology. So, but it was you were driven by. Well, let me ask you instead of putting words in your mouth. Yes. Was it was it had you decided you know based on your excitement in high school that you wanted to be a physicist or was it or did that develop or or, or was it always encouraged by your peer group?
1: Uh, we the peer group was uh, was also uh interested in science fiction yeah and science fiction uh the science of science fiction in those days was primarily physics it yeah. was the physics of interstellar travel y- Yeah. Which, uh, sure as you yeah. very as i know. Well <laughs> know
0: physics of star trek was good to me yes but yeah.
1: it was also other things it was <laughs> an introduction to uh to uh, philosophy because the uh Non-Aristotelian approach of of Isaac Asimov's Foundation series uh-huh. uh, refer to some uh, philosopher, and uh. we bought that philosopher's book. Oh, I see. On uh, non-Aristotelian mm-hmm. logic or whatever uh. it was. It oh, was so it was a
0: good way. It was a good entree.
1: But it also got us into Dianetics
0: oh, science gosh. fiction. Yeah. Oh, great. Okay, <laughs> at least you escaped from. We
1: cleared. No, for a while we we cleared each other Oh really? We tried. No. <laughs> we we tried to understand each other's sperm yeah, dreams. Yeah. Oh uh, my
0: god. Uh, but you over but happily We but, overcame that. Yeah, it's good. It's good you overcame that. No, it's interesting. Uh, that's another thing because you know people talk about the relationship between science fiction and science and obviously since you know I since I wrote a book related to at least one related to that people ask me all the time what's the connection and i I tend to think I mean it's not a connection that that science unlike many people I'm not I don't think science fiction all always predates the science or in any way understands the science but it it's this reinforcement of interest and we had we actually had a joint colleague well you had a joint colleague Ben and I for a little while at Harvard, Sidney Coleman, who was really, really a huge, the science fiction fan, and it's interesting that that. So, do you do you think you're interested in science fiction? encouraged started your interest in science or were you interested in science fiction because you were interested in science i which think is the science
1: fiction probably came first okay uh comic books came with a yeah. predecessor yeah. to science fiction but yeah, then sure. was, while i'm browsing in the candy store among the the comic books yeah. i found astan- ast- astounding science fiction yeah. Yeah. and yeah. uh that was the uh, john w campbell's uh, yeah. masterpiece book yeah. yeah uh because he also had a section in that book called brass Tax, which uh described basic science.
0: Oh okay. It, oh that's great. That that's well that's interesting. So
1: I learned some I learned some real science from from science fiction from that journal that well, magazine. Well
0: there you go. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to store that in my file when people ask me about that connection because it's neat to know that it came directly from that. And of course then I mean for me I was interested in science fiction but what a lot of people don't appreciate at least in my opinion is that this, it it relatively quickly became clear to me that the science was more interesting than the science fiction. <laughs> yes, and and people still still seem to think it's the other way around for a lot of people. But it's uh, but science the universe comes up with things that science fiction writers would never dream of.
1: Uh, this, this uh, yes, uh, the the recent uh, discoveries of the nature of the universe are. So spectacular, who would ever believe that we would know the age of the Earth to 1% and the age of the universe to better than 1%? I, I
0: would not have uh, I would not have believed it. In fact, even, I, I will say that when it came to the age, the, all the fundamental aspects of cosmology, and we'll get back to cosmology, but I remember when I was a young assistant professor at Yale, a, a, a well-known colleague of mine, an astronomer, who uh, said to me, you know, I, I had a positions in both astronomy and physics, and he said the universe would conspire so that you'd never be able to measure fundamental constants to within a factor of two. I mean, the age of the universe and the expansion rate. and Because that had been history. There had been a lot of definitive claims about age and expansion that had been wrong. And he was always convinced that observational errors would get in the way. But we'll get get to that, because we'll come back to observational errors later, because it may be one that you and I were just sort of debating earlier that may be relevant to understanding whether we're still totally wrong about the nature of the universe. And, but well let's get there before I get there let's get through your history a little bit more why um well, there's two questions I want to ha- ask um what w- was was there a, was it easy going or what was your greatest challenge I mean is there, is there a time when you thought of any time in your undergraduate career or even your graduate career when you thought of doing something else uh well uh
1: perhaps there was uh when Certainly not during college. At college, I was convinced that I was going to be a physics major and do theoretical physics, and in particular, what we like to call fundamental theoretical physics, particle physics. Mm-hmm. That, of that, I had no doubt. One of the things that convinced me, incidentally, was uh, chance contacts are so important. The uh, what is his name? Uh, Yukawa won the Nobel Prize uh, 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 in 1948 yeah. for his uh, 1934 prediction of the existence of mesons. Uh, uh-huh. uh, then the mesons were seen, and he was given the prize. He came to New York to give a talk, and I noticed that he was giving a talk. Uh-huh. and. I brought my friends, and we went to the talk. Oh, okay. Of course, we couldn't understand a word. (laughs) We were not that well informed about physics. But at the end, there was a bunch of people talking to Yukawa, up front who were left who hadn't gone home yet, and they were screaming at each other saying, it's a scalar, it's a scalar, no, it's a vector, Mm -hmm. it's an axial vector, Mm -hmm. it's a tensor. What the hell are they talking about, Uh we wondered. And, uh, of course, we wouldn't know for a long, long time. Yeah. But uh, that certainly confirmed my interest in in physics going back a few years to junior high school seventh uh-huh. grade uh-huh. uh because i just uh, re, i just recalled this incident i was in class uh no i I've, I've said this many times but out this is out of order yeah we it's went right. from graduate school it back to seventh matter. grade There's no, it, okay. forgive me i like time traveling yeah too. yeah
0: that's right exactly
1: so uh uh, the teacher explained to me the important difference between the words rotation and revolution, uh-huh. that the planets uh, rotate about their axis yeah. and revolve uh-huh. about the sun. And yeah. you mustn't get it wrong and uh-huh. yeah. say that the earth, well, uh-huh. whatever. But yeah. is, but the teacher then did precisely explain to us that, the, what the, these things are doing, the moon, the yeah. earth, and, yeah. uh, and the sun. And I said to, I raised my hand and I said, uh, "The it turns out what you're telling me is that the moon uh, rotates about its axis in exactly the same time as the urn, er, as the moon revolves yes. around yeah. the earth, and that's because we know that because we always see the same side yeah. of the moon." Yeah. And th- th- she said, "That's very interesting." And I said, "Why is it true?" And she said, she has no idea. That's a good question.
0: Oh, and that was very important. That You know, that's I, oh, that's a great example, which I'll use because I've argued, and she was a good teacher then, because I've argued the best thing a teacher or a parent can say is, I don't know, it's a good question, let's see if we can figure out why. That's right. Because it's dis- it turns learning into discovery instead of memorization. Absolutely. Well, she didn't proceed, we didn't proceed with it at that time, but it worried me. Uh,
1: for some time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And per, per, I think Bill O'Reilly still doesn't understand it because he <laughs> he still said no one understands the tides. I remember that in a in a show the other day. But anyway, a year or two ago, when when we you talk about teachers and we talk about uh, uh what, knowing you were going to be you you were going to continue to do that and Yukawa's talk and indeed it's interesting that 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 uh that going to that and and hearing arguments uh, about, was was important to you? Because I, I actually, again, it's funny how in our discussion I'm, it so much resonates with me. For me, you know, it was it wasn't that I, I growing up in Canada, I didn't have access so much to well-known scientists who were from the states. Although eventually I I, I got to hear a few, but it was reading Feynman only in the sense that up to a certain point, it, I always thought that sort of physics was done. You know, it had already been done in a in hundred years earlier. And it was only reading, I think, I don't know if it was the character of physical law, when I realized, hey, it's not all done. And that's, I think that becomes exciting to a young person too, because when you hear people arguing, you know, hey, maybe there's something I can do.
1: Yes, well, certainly things were, at the time I was going to school, things, there was a great deal of ferment and yeah. discovery going on throughout the 40s and 50s that Fission was discovered, after all, in, in 1938. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the, while I was going to school, uh, well, Feynman was uh, notorious, and, mm. and he was at Cornell when I was there, though I never met him. Oh, but I, interesting. Had him. Uh-huh. Uh, I had heard about him. Uh, I had heard about quantum field theory, and yeah. nobody quite understood it in those days. The yeah. only way to learn it was through some uh, uh, Dyson's notes, yeah, yeah, which, which were, I actually took a course in quantum field theory as a senior when I was in college. Wow! But I couldn't understand a word of it, and <laughs> at, at, I at the end, uh, Sam Schweber, who was my teacher in this okay. course, well known, uh, brought me uh, asked me to come up and said, "You're the only undergraduate in this course, and I have a problem." He said, "I give the graduate students a." Uh, a letter grade a b or c mm-hmm. but uh, you undergraduates and i only have you have to have a numerical grade so i don't really know what kind of grade to give you what uh, would you think an 85 would be okay
0: <laughs> you've been it's funny but you've been anticipating my questions and what you say but i was going to ask you knew you, uh, w- you want to be a theoretical physicist and a particle physics at the time it might have been called a nuclear physicist i don't know what the nomenclature was no it was already part it was already particle yeah. physics yeah. What what made you a decide you want to be a theoretical physicist and b why fundamental physics?
1: Well, I can't say I was a bad experimenter because I did all kinds of wonderful chemistry when I was a kid. Did I mean actually
0: but, did, didn't you also like become a finalist or win the the Intel Science? Club I or was a finalist. Uh,
1: Intel Intel came later. It was yeah. Westinghouse.
0: Westinghouse. Yeah, Westinghouse. Uh,
1: the Westinghouse Science Talent Search. Uh, I was. Uh, Part, part of, yes, one of the 40 uh, finalists uh, when I graduated from high school. And my project was biological. It was growing, uh, trying to grow tomato plants. Uh, and such in uh, in the absence of sulfur, and have them replace the sulfur by selenium. Your
0: big selenium back. I was That's gonna, I right. It was...
1: And I also hoped to, to to be able to f- produce well. Anyway, the, the experiments failed, and <laughs> yeah. the tomato plants died because <laughs> I had to go away for the weekend with my folks. So.
0: <laughs> okay. Anyway, but so you're an okay experimentalist. I mean, what you weren't driven to theory because you didn't like to tinker or anything. Yeah, like I
1: didn't that. really like to to uh, tinker with telescopes or with uh, experiments, I I think I broke a few instruments in the mandatory laboratory course. It was just not something that turned me on. No, I wanted to... to understand i didn't want to do I yeah i wanted to i didn't I want to test i wanted to invent
0: and then and was it and particle physics simply because it was the most fundamental or or um,
1: certainly was the uh was that in relativity and, the, and yeah. quantum mechanics i mean that's what drove the, me to the, the yeah. field
0: as well i mean it's just the most fundamental stuff but now you also anticipated the next question i want to ask describe i mean the state of when i with hindsight i look back at the state of physics when uh, when I knew you were becoming a physicist it wasn't real turmoil it it so descri- i mean for some people that will turn them off i mean it was just seemed to be a mess to some extent and so how did how did you relate when you became a graduate student it was a mess
1: it was the the fundamental things the things that really turned me on were a total mess Uh, strange particles what nobody knew what Mm. strange part Mm. i couldn't even quite understand what made them strange Strange, Uh, but uh, they were they did have funny properties and people were measuring their lifetimes and nobody knew why they were there, we still don't know why they were there, but mm-hmm. there were all kinds of puzzles. Then parody was violated in 1955. and, and Which
0: means, you know, somehow nature could... Distinguish left from right, which yeah. seems so crazy. That,
1: that was a that was a crazy discovery. Some discoveries were not crazy. And, uh, also, in, I think it was in the 1950s, the uh, antiproton was uh-huh. uh, produced and, and observed, and then that was something that was expected. It was
0: expected, exactly. But yeah. all
1: kinds of things that were not expected were happening in those days. Uh, the most well, it just went on and on. Every uh, year, too, there was something exciting. Even in early 1950, the first pion-nucleon resonance, the, first, uh, uh, the beginning of the population explosion oh, of particles.
0: Exactly. I mean, uh, you know, again, when we think about this in retrospect, and I've written about this, it uh, basically... It almost seems like a negative because the more every time people bang particles together, they discovered new particles. That's right. It looked like there was no order. It looked like it was just a a, a morass. There were too, too many particles for them all to be elementary. Exactly. And that that was not only confusing, but you might think, I mean, you could have two reactions to that, I suppose, if you're a student, saying, This is just crazy. I'm gonna to go to some field where where this makes <laughs> sense. Or I suppose if you're an ambitious young person, which I assumed you were, look, this is crazy. That means there must be some something to learn, and is that what motivated you at all?
1: Yes, absolutely, and of course that motivates. People in many fields today, yeah. not just physics, exactly and, uh, medicine, bio, biological science has become so much more a science than it was sure. back
0: then. Yeah, for me, yeah, that's why I didn't do it, it was memorizing a frog. If and I, yeah, 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 and 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 and, uh, and now it's so much different, and, and and also not so different than physics in many ways. I mean, the <clears throat> boundaries between physics and biology are kind of disappearing in many ways. Well,
1: I watched as my dear friend Wally Gilbert transitioned yeah. from being a theoretical yeah. physicist, yeah. hands off theoretical yeah. physicist who were hands-on uh, biological science,
0: And he did pretty well.
1: He won the Nobel pretty Prize well. that. Yeah. And became a billionaire.
0: Yeah, well, okay, so those are both two. <laughs> but not often, the only physicists I know who are billionaires are those that are failed physicists, actually. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the field was crazy. Things were crazy. And I mean, uh, look, uh, the the... the that where I'm heading is kind of well known. You and 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 Steve and others created, I mean, demonstrated, and, and and I've written a book about this, and so and you've written beautifully about it. Took this morass and made it and made sense of it. And uh, you, so you went to Harvard, and it's always interested me. I mean, I never, I, I I never knew Schwinger. I've read about, I've written about Feynman, and I've obviously written about Schwinger. But everything I know about Schwinger seems to me to be to some extent, the opposite of what I know about you, who I know very well, and I'm wondering how how Schwinger was a was a a very, as far as I can tell, a kind of very effete, f- certainly formal, and and none of which I associate with you. I'm wondering sort of why you chose each other.
1: And well, he was uh, well. First of all, uh, I didn't choose him, but at the when I went to Harvard, I had heard that he was there and that he was somebody important Well, he was the brilliant. Field.
0: I mean, everyone yeah. must have known he was brilliant.
1: But. but then when I got to Harvard, I realized that he was the only person I could sensibly work with. So mm-hmm. what? Uh, happened, he, it's true that his he had a funny style. His lecture was uh, precise. He had the voice of a radio announcer. Mm-hmm. It was perfect. Everything was in perfect sentences grammatically perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, The formulas were all clearly written on the board. The talk was so designed that he would be at the blackboard nearest the exit door. At the end of Mm -hmm. the lecture, he would end the lecture and he would simply immediately slip (laughs) out the door and disappear uh, so that his graduate students could not uh, track him down too easily. Uh, He was standoffish, yes. Uh, But let me tell you how I became his student. Sure. Ten or tw- I think 12 of us showed up in his office at the same time and said we wanted to be his student. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, we wanted to be his students. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he looked at us and said, uh, well, let me give you all a problem. So he gave us a problem, which was to uh, do some calculation, mm-hmm. which we all, we, Mm-hmm. Together, did. Did, yeah. <laughs> and, and then we came back uh, a week or two later and said, we did the problem. And mm-hmm. he explained that we did, we had done it. And he still had the problem of what to do with this it, dozen it, students. Yeah. He gave up and he started assigning problems uh, to one after another. One to to Charlie Summerfield, who would become a
0: Yale professor. Yeah, was a colleague of mine when I taught you. That's
1: so. right. Another would become, uh, had another problem in strong interactions. Marshall Baker, mm-hmm. he became a professor at uh, University of Washington. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next one was uh, Danny Kleitman, who mm. uh, became a famous mathematician, mathematician. Yeah. as well as my brother-in-law. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: And uh, and so it went uh, and, until he got to me, which is toward the end of the, uh, mm. of the group of people. And apparently he had run out of sensible problems. Which is <laughs> good. Uh, so he said to me, uh, Shelley, uh, we were on a first-name basis, at least he to me. Yeah. And I said, yes, and he said, well, why don't you, uh, there are certain properties that weak and electromagnetic interactions have in common. And I believe that if you make use of this Yang Mills formalism that had, he hated to refer to other people. Oh, interesting. This was the one time that he did (laughs) in my presence. Uh, Use that formalism and make a unified theory of weak and electromagnetic interactions. So that was it. He had the idea he was the first person to imagine such a a possibility.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And he gave it to me, and I played with it. I had convinced myself that he was right. I Mm. found other reasons that one could argue that there should be such a unified theory, but I certainly couldn't make very much progress toward finding it until they finally threw me out of Harvard and gave me a degree. (laughs) But uh, then... Uh, at, a year later, or two years later, when I was in Copenhagen as a postdoc, I did. I wrote the one paper which earned my Nobel, Nobel Prize, Prize, which yeah. is I found one of the pieces in the puzzle that would uh, enable the theory to
0: emerge. It's uh, it, it yeah, it, the fact that he ended up you know sort of giving you directing you as a student to a problem that eventually would win the Nobel Prize is um, it's amazing, and and I guess it reflects something that I hadn't appreciated about him until I was writing my last book, when I, of course, I delved more into the history of particle physics and more deeply than I had ever done as, you know, just teaching it. But the notion that he understood, that he appreciated what seemed, I, I'm not sure a lot of people, there's a there's a formalism, you mentioned Yang Mills, but this idea of this kind of theory, which we don't have to talk about here, the, a gauge theory, this kind of mathematics, which has become central to all of our understanding of particle physics, at the time, there weren't many people who appreciated. I think, at least my understanding, that that could be so important, right? It was just an—I mean, two really important people had done it, but—or at least one, Yang—and—and—but and, it <coughs> didn't look like it would be—it would be relevant. And he said, so he had a did, so. Would you say his physics intuition was good, or was it was it the mathematics, or what was it that drove him to that? Uh,
1: you... He had he had an enormous, a brilliant intuition, but. Uh, coupled with this this desire to do everything in a very formal fashion that was a peculiar <laughs> combination, mm-hmm. which was very effective at some times and very bad at other times. Mm-hmm. But but uh, he was gifted in many ways. Let me give another example that okay. ha- happened at my thesis exam. Mm-hmm. So he had, uh, the way he taught physics uh, to me, he argued that electrons and muons, which are particles mm-hmm. that yeah. are lep- charged leptons, we call them, mm-hmm. uh, were known at the time, and they. He said, if we're going to have a quantum number that distinguishes electrons from muons, then surely we should. It should not be the e minus and. Uh, and mu minus that have different lepton number, ha- that have lepton number, it should be the E minus and the mu plus. So we uh-huh. that way, this quantum number charge and the new uh-huh. quantum uh-huh. number can distinguish electrons uh-huh. from mu ones. Uh-huh. So he said it had to be that way, and it followed that there had to be two kinds of neutrinos oh. in nature. So it built into the way he taught physics, particle uh, physics, was the fact that there are two kinds of neutrinos. Which, of course... Anyway, this was before... Before it was ever known, of course. Before it was, uh, it was acknowledged as a technical possibility well, by some people, but it wasn't known. wouldn't be known until 1963. Yeah. Uh, this was now in the 1950s. Sure. So in 1958, when I went for my thesis exam... Uh, to Madison, Wisconsin, because Schwinger had gone off to Madison for other reasons, got interested in condensed matter physics. Yeah. Uh, uh, the exam took place there, and uh, Yang, the above-mentioned <laughs> Yang yeah. of yeah. Yang and Mills, uh-huh. was uh, uh, in my committee. He was in your committee. That's right. He and oh. Paul Martin and Julian Schwinger and some nucleus. Wow, Noobius, well, that's was pretty a pretty
0: intimidating committee, actually. It was a wonderful committee. Yeah. So I
1: started explaining how the electron neutrino is different from the muon neutrino, and Yang said, wait a minute. I said, yes, sir? And he mm. said, but don't you understand that there's no way of distinguishing electron neutrinos from muon neutrinos if they, it makes no sense to say they are different from one another? Uh, it's a an, it's meaningless concept, and I began to explain. Mm-hmm. Schwinger, seeing my distress mm-hmm. and realizing that he was the cause mm-hmm. of it, said, let me explain oh. the situation to Mr. Yang. And he patiently ex- explained how an experiment could be done, namely the experiment mm-hmm. would, was be a, that that would be done in a couple of years, mm-hmm. uh, how an experiment could be done to distinguish electron neutrinos from muon neutrinos if indeed they were different from one another. And uh, Yang uh, uh, nodded and then the exam continued and I passed the Mm. exam. That would be the end of the story, except six months later, Li and Yang published a paper <laughs> explaining how electron neutrinos and muon mm. neutrinos could be different from one another. <laughs> they simply stole the idea from Julian. Holy macro. He was subject to many such acts of fevery. Mm. Years later, by the way, I went to, uh, only 10 years ago, mm. I met uh, Yang in China and mm-hmm. was speaking with him, and I described the incident to him, mm-hmm. and I asked him if uh, perhaps i had uh remembered this correctly or not mm-hmm. he said it is exactly as you said Shelley."
0: oh interesting Shelley. perhaps we should step back here when we talk about your working with schwinger to give a sense of 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 uh of what of, of who schwinger was and what the man the man was i remember of course when i was a graduate student one always wanted to work with the sort of most famous scientists you could work with and most accomplished and uh and julian schwinger i guess uh, even i mean in retrospect of course he was se- he's seen as a towering figure but even in the 1950s he was already recognized as a towering figure for what he'd done maybe you could maybe you could talk about that for a little bit
1: uh, about julian schwinger well uh, uh let me backtrack a little bit to to go back all the way to the 1920s when quantum mechanics was created okay and uh, one of the things that the originators of quantum mechanics didn't uh, were very unhappy about was that quantum mechanics was not compatible with the special theory of relativity mm-hmm. and uh, that was a terrible bugaboo for a long time uh, it was attempts were made to create a theory of the electron that is uh, consistent with relativity and one person made such a theory but it was inconsistent with the electron spin mm-hmm. another person made a theory that was consistent with electron spin mm-hmm. but not consistent with relativity mm-hmm. until finally a young man a then young man called uh, Paul Dirac uh, created the theory of an equation that correctly describes the electron and is relativistic mm-hmm. and also includes a description of spin and uh, that was the uh, beginning of uh, the marriage that would take place between quantum mechanics and relativity.
0: Let me let me just jump in for one second and say that that equation also predicted something that he didn't believe, and that's why he thought the equation was wrong. And later on, he said the equation was smarter than he was. But <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: it's, he, he, it's, it's amazing to, to look over those old papers because he originally... Uh, noticed that the equation had too many solutions. And he thought that it was a unified theory. He thought that the uh, negative uh, charge solutions would be electrons and the positive charge solutions would be protons. And he realized that this made no sense, that the two things had to have the same mass. And finally, he realized that he was, in fact, predicting the positron just shortly before the positron was Quite independently and serendipitously discovered. Yeah, the, the I mean it was a positively charged electron,
0: and that was. I mean, I think that in retrospect, that was a the reason he was so timid about it is that that was the first time in the history of physics that a theoretical work had predicted the existence of a new of a new fundamental particle in nature, and and uh, and one should say by the way that the proton is is, you know, 2,000 times more massive than the electrons, so it's hard to imagine them being different. Well, the
1: neutron might have been predicted by Rutherford. Maybe uh, a little bit, but from a
0: fundamental theory where it sort of had to be there. Anyway, it it was, I guess it's kind of amazing because the people who went out and discovered the positron weren't, motivated by... They were not looking for y- positrons. It was just happened to be within two years of the theory that they discovered. It was kind of totally serendipity.
1: It was to- absolutely serendipitous. There have been so many such serendipitous yeah. discoveries. That's been a theme of of discovery. Yeah. Sure, in, in, sure. In, in, in all of the sciences, sure. not just physics. Uh, but then Schwinger, uh, the marriage was not yet created because uh, it was... Uh, The theory described how photons, how particles of light, could be created and destroyed, Mm -hmm. but it didn't describe how electrons and positrons could be created and Mm -hmm. destroyed, Mm -hmm. how a photon could create an electron Mm -hmm. and positron pair, Mm -hmm. or how an electron and positron could annihilate one another to become photons. This was Mm -hmm. not part of the theory. Mm -hmm. Uh, To get that kind of theory, uh, that that. That, that, was called, that would emerge as something called quantum field theory. Mm-hmm. And it emerged through the work of uh, many people, but particularly three of them, which was Schwinger on the one hand, Feynman in the, independently on the other hand, and in Japan, uh, meanwhile, just after the, the Second World War, Tomonaga in Japan— and uh, they, these three were eventually recognized as the creators of quantum electrodynamics. And there was a fourth person who played an integral role as well, and that was a, a, a man named Dyson, mm-hmm. who, it's uh, some argue, should have shared in the Nobel Prize, but the Nobel Prize is famous for being able to only honor three people <laughs> at a time. Yeah. In any case, uh, though, th- that... Uh, that enhanced the fame of uh, Schwinger and Feynman, of course, uh, and certainly to Monica. But uh, Schwinger had before been working on radar, radar and had during the solved war. some radar-related problems, uh, electromagnetic problems, classical electromagnetic theory uh, problems that nobody else could could approach. And he he had been as a Calculator. He was amazing, he was ph- phenomenal as a calculator. Phenomenal, yes. and I
0: think he liked being. You know, I think he. I remember there's a famous statement about it, about his distaste of Feynman's work because everyone could understand Feynman, and he said, "Now, now this goes to the masses or something." Now, that's like
1: that. right, because <laughs> Feynman had his Feynman diagrams, which Wingard would not accept right. such diagrams. Because
0: anyone could calculate then, instead of just him. Actually, do you know why? I don't know if you know why. I was always amazed in the history. Feynman and, and and at least many of the community went to Los Alamos working on the bomb. Schwinger worked on radar and stayed in 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 Harvard at the in Boston, right? In Boston, yeah. But I guess because it was a war effort, it was a reasonable place for him to stay, or did he choose not to go to Los Alamos? Do you know, or
1: I don't know if he what. I I think he felt that uh, that he was doing something useful and. Uh, uh, quite happy to be doing it there. There was no reason to get involved in anything else. And after all, you can well argue that radar played, uh, and, mm-hmm. and as well as uh, as uh, new developments in in bomb technology in in, uh, in fuses, yeah, uh, were more played a more important role
0: than in, a, than in any nuclear war. weapons. Yeah. Okay. No, I just wondered if you knew that. I never do. Okay. So that's that's good to know about about. So now that clears up that, that issue. Yeah, and so there was a good reason to wanna to wanna work with Schwinger when you went to Harvard, in spite of the fact. Also, I guess, as you say, he was perhaps the only person. Was he the only person at the Harvard at the time sort of thinking about particle physics? Is that... Now, the- I,
1: I, the, well, no, there were experimenters. There That's theorists. There, there, but among theorists, there was... No, there there was uh, Roy Glauber who had just gotten his degree and he was certainly doing things related to neutrons and such, mm-hmm. but more in the way of nuclear physics than mm-hmm. particle nuclear physics. physics. Okay. Uh, and there was uh, Paul Martin and and they were doing... Uh, elect- uh, problems in in electrody- studying the nature of positronium positronium which is a combination of an electron and a positron going forming their own little atom. Uh, that was a big issue going on at those times. But they were not really taking students. It, Swingo was taking students by the a dozen. dozen at a time.
0: <laughs> by the students by the dozen. By the I mean, dozen. As someone, I'm sure you're the same, as someone who's had students, I, I've always had, uh, there's once or twice in my life I've had more than one student at a time and I found that very difficult. Yeah, but, I had
1: two. Two uh, was difficult. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Twelve, I can't imagine.
1: One of them was the Chinese uh, young man named Andy Yao, who uh, got his PhD with me. I took him to France when uh, in one year, and we were working together with Iliopolis and uh, yeah. we, we had a lot of fun. Uh, he uh, met and married a girl who was into computer science, and she got him seduced into not just sexually, but also <laughs> into, into computer science. He went off and got a degree in computer science, a PhD, a second PhD. He then won the Turing Prize in the, <laughs> (laughs) the highest level prize in computer science, and uh, went off to China to become an uh, extremely famous uh, scientist and well-recognized scientist in, in China. I've recently met him there, and he's among those who have renounced their American citizenship. He said he has not done this for any political reason or whatever. In fact, he has uh, citizenship uh, on Hong Kong so he can travel freely to uh, the United States. Oh, uh, but the reason he gave up his citizenship is that as a member of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, he is uh, not required, he's ineligible to pay Chinese income taxes. Oh, but he would have to continue <laughs> paying, you know, forty percent of his salary in, in, to the United States so, oh. so he decided that it was just not worth it. The less noble
0: political reasons. It was for purely us. money. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know that that's uh, from a perspective. Well, of he's perspective. a mathematician, so yeah. So he knows about money. Yes, <laughs> or at least he knows about numbers. Um, uh, the the um, let's speaking of the so him moving to China. Um, I uh, you mentioned that that. Uh, China's
1: throwing money at he's science. He's throwing
0: money at science. But you mentioned that that Yang, who is really what, a revered scientist, and certainly should be, and, and has gone back to China, one of the scientists who's gone back to China after many years in the United States, surprisingly uh, was opposed to China building a new accelerator.
1: I guess he has uh, come to the conclusion that building new accelerators has not really taught us very much. He's watched the uh, uh, LEP, the Large Electron Positron Accelerator, spend most of its time simply confirming a theory mm-hmm. that, that seemed to be correct in the first place and mm-hmm. providing endless confirmations, mm-hmm. uh, Sisyphean uh, uh, confirmations of the theory. He's seen the Large Hadron Collider and Fermilab, uh, neither of them making that many uh, substantial discoveries of, of anything new. The last great discoveries of Unanticipated things were decades ago.
0: Yeah, well, I know. Someone has been working. And you looking. know that. And <laughs>
1: and uh, perhaps he realized or he concluded that there were no more great discoveries to uh, be made. Uh, and well. why, why should we be spending so much money in this particular direction when there are so many other things that could be done with the money?
0: Let, let, let me, you just said something that maybe allows us to 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 segue a little to the modern times because we're not going to explain the standard model here. We're, no, no, but, no. But 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 I would say for the listeners that the unification of these two these two forces, the weak and electromagnetic, isn't is anything but obvious. They behave very differently. The weak force operates on a nuclear scale. The electromagnetic force across the whole universe. If you were thinking of two things that could somehow be different manifestations of the same thing, in some ways you couldn't imagine two things that look more different. At this in in a, on a in a superficial way uh, you need someone like Schwinger and eventually you guys to be able to realize that 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 there was something fundamental about
1: that. well actually Yukawa in the 1930s yeah. was trying to unify Fine. the strong and, and the weak y- nuclear y- interactions. yeah
0: yeah for a long time that was a red herring in many ways that's and, right and, and yeah well we could go into that but we may or may not but in fact it it's probably relevant to something I want do want to get to because I want to talk about string theory a little bit at some point point. and 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 the precursor of string theory was was a theory in the 1960s that was trying to try to overcome the, the morass of misunderstanding about nature at that point. But before we get there, you talked about how Schwinger liked, the, what attracted to him this idea was probably mathematical as much as physical, the formalism that he called the Yang-Mills formalism, beautiful mathematical formalism that he could appreciate. I have to tell you, I, I think I've told you this, but maybe not. You changed my, my own career in physics in m- many ways. But when I was <laughs> positively, uh, I positively, hope. I hope so. Um, I I was in graduate school. and I was very mathematical. I was doing mathematical physics, and I remember. Um, well, we first met at a, at a at a summer school in Scotland, and I think you. Well, anyway, I I you. I would talk to you after that, and and uh, and you told me something that I always still remember and tell students. You said, "There's physics and there's formalism, and you have to know the difference." And many people get enamored with the formalism and and don't realize it's not the same thing as physics. i I, I thought I'd give you a chance to elaborate on that a little bit because it was maybe you obviously you don't remember telling me that, but it, for me, it was profoundly important because suddenly, I realized that if I was going to be doing something and it wasn't and it wasn't motivated by some experimental phenomena, in some ways, I, I wasn't doing physics and and uh, and I and from then on, well, there have been a few times when I've dabbled in different areas, but I've always tied my own work to something that was related to, to something you can measure, or 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 an experiment that may have unexpected um, results, etc. So that that really changed my life.
1: I I experienced many uh, fads. Uh, yeah. In in physics uh, during my years, uh, first there was uh, there were dispersion relations mm-hmm. and uh, they we're not so disconnected from experiment as all that, but yeah. but people became fascinated by dispersion relations as dispersion relations. Yeah. And that led to more and more elaborate constructions such as Reggie Poles and and the uh, Mandelstam uh, uh, parametrization of scattering and uh, mm. sc- scattering as a discipline in and of itself. And,
0: and I may say that not only will the public, members of the public who hear this, not in other words, many physicists won't because, of course, in some ways, they they went by the wayside of the the dustbin of history. In some way, while they're fundamentally true, anyway. So, but on. there
1: are new new dust new it's, dustbins it's, have arisen. It, yeah, and course, uh, that, you are leading us to uh, string theory, which is forty years old as well.
0: Yeah, it's amazing.
1: It's amazing, and to things like supersymmetry, yeah. which are forty years old or so.
0: So okay. So what did, in that context, and I want to get there again physics and formalism how do you find it how do you distinguish between those two things physics and formalism
1: well one thing that disturbs me it's not so much a question of of formalism it's a question of one's approach to physics and some people like jeffrey chu uh, who was the leader of a, uh, of a of a program that has not gone anywhere in the 1960s? In right. the 1960s, uh, he he was preoccupied with the concept of a program that one must have a generalized uh, program that would deal with all of all of basic fundamental physics. And uh, so it was with Einstein when he tried to uh, spend all these years trying to unify electricity and uh, electromagnetism and gravity, which he regarded as the only exciting fundamental things in physics, uh, falsely. Yeah. Uh, And the... uh, uh, That... Well, let's see. I'm not quite sure so, where I was headed. We with were, with
0: Jeffrey Fulchel having a big program. Oh, oh,
1: his program, the programmatic nature. And it spread to Schwinger, who also developed the programmatic at, uh, attitude toward physics, toward quant, to his, his child, quantum field theory, yeah. which uh, he and Feynman and Tomonaga shared the really. Nobel Prize for. But yeah. he had his way of doing things. basically the difference being that uh, Feynman used the integral calculus and, mm. and, and, and Schwinger used the differential calculus got, to formulate it, the theory it, yeah uh, And then he was led uh, to formulating and reformulating and reformulating again quantum field theory. He had his first series of papers, which were called quantum electrodynamics, his second series of papers, which were called the theory of quantized fields, Mm -hmm. and then his discovery of uh, source theory, which was his way of doing quantum field theory, which... Uh, he could practice, but nobody else could succeed in practicing, which so <laughs> yeah. led him astray. It yeah. led him to California with yeah. the fruits and the nuts. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was so. I never had a a, a general approach, and I would just uh, uh, my attitude was to look for the low hanging fruit, mm-hmm. look for puzzles that I could that I could answer when. Uh, very quickly in my career was the Xi the Hyperon had been discovered, and the question is, what was its parity? Could we design an experiment to measure its space-time property called parity? Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Barche and I, long ago, w- wrote a paper, even before my uh, my Nobel-winning paper, mm-hmm. which suggested a plausible experiment. And so it went with little things here and there, uh, how there could be mixing between particles uh, apparently different from one another—that you know, sort of stuff.
0: Well, and 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 solving interesting puzzles. But they were all. But is it true? I mean, you know, as far as I know, when I think of the um, the work that I the, and, and, and that I know of your work, which is pretty extensive, um, that were they all motivated by physical by puzzles uh, in experiments? Uh, yeah. Or was it anything purely? For let me give you an example. Uh, one, uh, of course, one of the other than the work unifying weak and electromagnetic interactions, you and and uh, and James York you know proposed an extra quark, which yeah. turned out to be there. And then something that really did affect, and maybe for better or worse, the, the future of physics, leading to supersymmetry and string theory, is the idea of what's called grand unification, the idea that maybe not just two of the forces in nature might be unified, but but three of them, and you, you created the paradigm theory for that. Um, right. Was, of all the ones, the idea that there may be a unification of the forces, the quark one I can kind of understand being motivated by puzzles and experiment, but was grand unification motivated by experiment or just something that you thought was neat?
1: Uh, in both cases, it's a question of beauty. And uh, uh-huh. Let me, uh, this is, it's a much... Uh, described concept, the uh, beauty in physics. Yes, is, and I want to get there, something, so this is good. Is it good uh, uh, to be led by a desire for beauty, or mm-hmm. is it uh, dangerous? Yeah. And uh, it can be argued both ways. Let me come back to the fourth quark. Okay. So I was on sabbatical in Copenhagen uh, with uh, with Bjorken, James mm-hmm. Bjorken, and we noticed that if you would have a fourth quark, mm-hmm. Uh, then there would be four different kinds of quarks and four different kinds of leptons. There Le- would be, Leptons
0: are being like, well, you can uh, say what they are.
1: That's right, uh, the, uh, the electrons and such and neutrinos. Yeah. There would be the electron and its neutrino and the muon and its neutrino, both forming... Uh, Pairs uh, mm. with natural doublets,
0: yeah,
1: and there, in quark-wise, there was the up quark and the down quark, and then there was the strange quark all alone. Mm-hmm. If you put in a charm quark, there would be two doublets mm-hmm. of quarks, just like there are two doublets of leptons, and mm-hmm. that would make things algebraically more elegant and neat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really that was the real motivation for us
0: introducing the fourth quark. Interesting. So you're guilty of searching for beauty yourself. I'm certainly guilty
1: <laughs> for searching for beauty myself. And then later, what the amazing part of this story to me, uh-huh. is we did this in 1964, uh-huh. uh, and nothing much came of it for another six years yeah. until I got together with Iliopoulos and Mayani yeah. at Harvard, and we used that fourth quark idea to do something very neat mm-hmm. and create this – the it's described as the one great success of of, of the search for naturalness yeah. in, in quantum field theory.
0: Yes, this wonderful mechanism called the gym mechanism, where the fourth quark and allowed you to solve a, a problem we won't go into. That's right. Uh, which is, by the way, near and dear to my heart, because I was doing my PhD exam, oral exam, which was a general exam, a week after you won the Nobel Prize. And um, and there were parties. and or Three days after you won the Nobel Prize, I remember that, and there were parties. And I was doing very mathematical physics. I mean, really mathematical physics. And the first question in my... Oral exam was described the mechanic mechanism, and I looked like a deer in the headlights, <laughs> and I failed that exam. <laughs> so I very quickly learned about the gym mechanism after that. So that's uh, that, I, the importance of that is is uh, is ingrained in my mind ever since then. But it was important because, in fact, it was a it was a good reason for, in in retrospect that because I really wasn't keeping in touch with what was driving. The physics, I was doing something called fiber bundles and games. Yeah, theories. yeah, yeah, that's... And, the- and, 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 and when I realized that I wasn't in touch with something as significant as that, that was a real wake-up call for me, so it was, it was probably useful. But anyway...
1: There are still mathematicians out there, uh, mathematical physicists, who who tell me that I I simply don't understand quantum field theory <laughs> if I don't express it in terms of fiber bundles. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're still, you, you, you they're still well. at it.
0: Yeah, well, it did pretty well as far as <laughs> I'm concerned. But but grand unification. Well, it's a it's a it's a grand name, but it was also not our
1: name and yeah. not a yeah, name it, that I, know, I approve I, yeah, of. I know. Yeah,
0: you won't yes. take you. It sounds like a church. But. Uh, uh, but it also basically is a beautiful i mean it is really a, a, a it's motivated in retrospect by a number of physical ideas as well but initially it was a again a mathematical property no it
1: was motivated purely from uh the search for simplicity and beauty and, yeah. and what uh, by that time, uh, physicists had learned a little bit about Lie groups, and we knew the difference mm-hmm. between simple groups and, and non-simple groups. Mm-hmm. And the group responsible for the standard model, which is mm-hmm. often called SU three cross mm-hmm. SU two mm-hmm. cross U one, mm-hmm. is evidently tripartite. <laughs> yeah, it's yes, yes. not a simple group; it has three parts. Yes, yeah, and there were such things as simple groups, and there were this what what. Howard georgia and i did is to search for the simplest simple groups that contain the tripartite group of the standard model and And, uh, and, we found two i found one and he found another which are the two simple examples of 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 grand unified theories
0: which motor yes which i remember when i was again uh, when i which were this became the search for what to see whether that idea was true became the central direction of particle physics in in the in the late mid to late 70s and and, uh, and
1: it's still there.
0: it's still lingering it, it, as, uh, it, well let me ask you um, before I get to something else, I, I read once that you said uh, about the about and you mentioned here that you were convinced that the and electromagnetic magnetic interactions would be unified. You were convinced in 1958 you said um, that there must be a unifying thing and that for one reason or another, you continued to think about it. Are you convinced that now uh, that it equally, conv- I mean, it's a beautiful idea and it seems to smell right to me and many others. But are you convinced that unification exists out there or not?
1: I think there's a chance, but the
0: uh, the
1: current view of uh, of the universe, of the, the string theoretical mm-hmm. universe, is one that uh, makes it impossible to to make such arguments because mm-hmm. they, uh, as as you well know. Uh, questions of that kind are now uh, accidents of birth of our particular universe, and there's no way we can tell whether, uh, what the future will bring.
0: Yeah, it doesn't look like, I mean, the search for something fundamental, namely, when I was growing up, uh, and maybe one would hope it's still this way, but when I was growing up, we wanted to explain why the universe had to be the way it is. That was what I thought That's physics. And now the idea is that maybe that's a bad question, that maybe it's just all a big accident. There's no real reason why anything is anything.
1: That's right. It, was, it, all, it all follows from Steve Weinberg's question uh, that he asked many years ago. He said, is it that the questions we ask today about elementary particles are like the questions that people asked in the past about the radii of planetary orbits? Uh, And Kepler found some cockamamie
0: explanation,
1: but it was nonsense. This was not a real question.
0: Yeah, knowing what's fundamental is easy after the fact. It's really easy after the fact, but not when you're in the middle of confusion let 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 let's talk a little about string theory because i i there's a quote from here as i was reading i re i reread it just in anticipation of this an old paper you wrote a little 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 i guess it's a paper the paper desperately seeping superstrings from 1986
1: yes, that was co-authored with uh, uh,
0: paul ginsburg yes who's now cornell who created a something in who physics. was a string theorist at one was a, time yes and um um yeah, there was a number of criticisms or interesting discussions. It was actually when I read it at the time. I remember it caused a stir because everyone thought it was so heretical. But it's actually kind of kind in many ways. But it does say, <laughs> um, in lieu of the traditional confrontation between theory and experiment, superstring theorists pursue an inner harmony where elegance, uniqueness, and beauty define truth. And that was, and you were criticizing things because you said. The, the 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 instead of the confrontation between theory and experiment and it's rather interesting for me and you i, I know that for us for for me still i'm, I'm an old fashioned physicist in the sense that whether something when you have an idea what really matters is does nature you know obey that idea does it descri- does it explain anything does it explain experiments whereas there's a whole generation that's grown up that says is it a beautiful or elegant idea that's more important than whether it actually explains anything, and that's a problem, don't you agree? I think
1: it's very much a problem, and and it's it. it, it well, you know, well, let's be careful. The superstring people are very smart.
0: Yeah, and, absolutely, uh, they, 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 and it's well. Mo- in many ways, it's well mo- motivated. It's motivated by gauge theories and the kind of things that the standard model built up, and the pu- and some puzzles in the standard model, after all. Like why?
1: No, there, yes, there are puzzles remaining, but the, the the real why questions that that I'd like answers to is you know why are there six kinds of quarks? Why are there three families of quarks and yeah. leptons? Why is there this particular tripartite group? Yeah, uh, things like that. Uh, why? Well, not exactly why questions, but how did it come out? come about that there are yeah. all, all, all why
0: I've, I've said it before in my books all why questions in science are really how questions so don't, yeah, yes don't assume there's purpose but we want to know how the universe came to make and you're right in the standard model which is beautiful and by the way i've argued is one is the is the most amazing sort of triumph of the human intellect that i know of that the whole journey to the standard model that describes nature in ways that i again i must say even when i was a graduate student i never thought we'd we'd reach such a point we'd reach such a point but that beautiful model has 17 or so it's not so beautiful when (laughs) you
1: look at it with the microscope it's
0: quite ugly in fact it's like impressionist paintings i've always said so. from a distance they look great we walk up close they look pretty bad and uh and so that certainly is a cause at least for some of us of concern right
1: but i but uh, another cause for concern is that there is no experiment that contradicts the standard exactly. model.
0: Exactly, and it's exactly that. I think that I mean certainly. Um, it, it, again, if I when I look at history and when I look at my, even things that have happened since I since I've been a physicist, that it's those contradictions, it's those puzzling things that come up that drive theoretical physicists. I mean, we can theoretical physicists can come up with a lot of stuff if you lock them in a room for a long time they come up with beautiful things that had nothing to do with the world because the the imagination in nature in my experience is a lot better than the imagination of human beings and it's the experiments that drive us and tell us what's the right direction
1: that's true and the, the tragedy of the moment is that the large hadron collider which is the most powerful accelerator working today is uh has not found any surprises, whatever. Just merely finding, merely is uh, perhaps the wrong word, discovering the Higgs boson.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it was a huge triumph, both intellectually and experimentally, to be able to discover this. Absolutely. And some people may think that that's... but, but, But what, from a physicist's point of view what you like to be at some level is wrong with something about the standard model we hope is wrong namely disagrees with the experiment so that we can tell us where how to where to go exactly. beyond it exactly
1: and that's what's missing at the moment yeah. and maybe and... tomorrow they'll find doubly charged leptons <laughs> or who knows
0: well i let's let's go to the future now i, I think it, it's a perfect segue to that to think about well, the puzzles that exist now, and we can talk about some of them, and as we talked about before, some of them are in cosmology, which yes, are indeed. When I you when I when I was a doing my PhD, uh, I actually started as a particle physicist, and I've been a particle physicist, but I started to think about cosmology at the time. That was not that was sort of new, but now, in in a way, it, what's happened in the last thirty or forty years is because accelerators have been limited in in the new things they've been able to tell us, we look at the universe, which was a particle physics experiment after all, and the early universe had energies that we can't access with our current accelerators. Many of us have looked at the universe to try and find clues that might take us beyond the standard model. And, And the question is, when the Large Hadron Collider came on, great, suddenly particle physics could access something new. And we all thought, many people thought, not just the Higgs, Many people thought that would discover this thing called supersymmetry. It hasn't. Do you have any sense from your gut intuition where you whether, A, what the likelihood is that the Large Hadron Collider might discover something new and where it might come from? You have a pretty good track record.
1: Uh, yes, but not recently. <laughs> and, uh, the uh, Large Hadron Collider has not found anything unexpected, and uh, it's unlikely that it will, because uh, its energy is compromised compared to the uh, what we all knew was the right energy uh, that was needed with the uh, the superconducting supercollider.
0: Which, which I should preface, it was a tragedy in many ways for science and for this country. There was a there was an accelerator being built in the United States, which. Which was designed based on the on the physics problems, it designed from scratch based on trying to solve the physics problems, and the United States decided in its the government of the United States decided in its wisdom that we couldn't afford to build this thing, which may have cost ten billion dollars, which is like the as I often say, like the the air conditioning cost for the Iraq War or something <laughs> like that. But but uh, and whereas in CERN they had a machine already and they designed a collider that could fit within the existing tunnel. That
1: was done after the abortion
0: of the... After uh, the abortion. But they did, within the constraints of what they had, rather than designing a machine from scratch, and I think many of us... They did I was, the
1: best they could.
0: Yeah, they, the, and I think it was the, a, still a gamble that they could have discovered. I was surprised that they actually discovered, were able to discover the Higgs there. I don't know if you...
1: I was also surprised. And it was a display of an, enormous skill and competence by it, the Unbelievable. As a theorist, I was just... Yeah. Talking 3,000 PhD physicists working together. Yeah, and
0: together. And it worked. I mean, it's just amazing. So so that's right. That machine has been, has been hindered, but people are talking about... Building a new machine, the problem is, because we haven't seen anything, the problem is, it seems to me one of the problems is sociological. How do you go to Congress or your government and say, guess what? We didn't see anything. Give us (laughs) us more money. I, I don't know if that's exactly the best approach.
1: Well, the Europeans are not using quite that approach. No. Uh, CERN is uh, anticipating a more or less constant budget mm-hmm. on which it will continue to develop new tools and more powerful accelerators. And the uh, it is the intent of CERN to build a 100-kilometer-long uh, uh, circular mm-hmm. accelerator, mm-hmm. which will far exceed the power of the superconducting supercollider that this country did not build.
0: Uh, what's the best argument? Oh, well, look, if the money's flowing, that's okay. But if you wanted to talk to the public, and one of the things I want to say is that you've, like me, uh, both of us, I think, understand uh, or appreciate the importance of talking to the public about science for a lot of reasons, particularly because science is misunderstood in our society in so many ways. But why? If it, what argument can we give for why we should be spending money on such an esoteric uh, machine that may or may not give us something new.
1: Yeah, well, of course there's no indication that this country intends to do it, anything it, of the it, kind. It, yeah. Uh,
0: and uh, that
1: cutback that took place in 1993 was yeah. not just the cutback of the uh, of of the superconducting supercollider it was a general reduction of uh, funding throughout science Yeah. and uh, we're still well behind where we were at that time in terms of funding. I mean, yeah, we, a
0: decision it, in some ways to abdicate leadership. If you if you want,
1: it's true, and uh, so it's not a question that I would choose to to address here. It's one that I have addressed in Japan, where the mm. Japanese are trying to build mm. a. Uh, modestly more powerful device the mm-hmm. the, the called the, uh, the international linear collider yeah. ultimately to receive some contributions from america and mm-hmm. from europe and perhaps from china uh, but they're trying to make that same argument today uh, about the importance of the uh, device and there are several different uh, uh, parts of that argument one is the 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 our obligation to understand the universe as best we can, yeah. uh, which is uh, w- w- which is not sufficient. Another yeah. is that the uh, spin-off technologies could be and uh, have traditionally been very important in mm. such things. Look just at CERN, at so many things that have been spun off from CERN, not least of which is the <laughs> World Wide uh, Web, yeah. but also various new developments in refrigeration technology that have commercial importance, all sorts of interesting mm-hmm. things. Uh, furthermore, they have a particular uh Uh, goal in Japan, which is to build the thing in an area which has been devastated by the uh, the Fukushima Fukushima, uh, uh, event, let's not call it, it was a disaster, Disaster. 30,000 people Mm. died, that is a disaster. Uh, And there's a huge area which is now uh, relatively desolate that Mm -hmm. can be repopulated and reformed by the creation of this device uh, at that location. So there are many arguments that can be used and, and, and brought to the fore.
0: There's one that I've used, which, in addition, and I know I, th- I don't know how, how it plays in Japan. I would have thought it would play well in China, which is that by being a leader in what is the co- sort of fundamental physics or fundamental science, it's, it's sexy, it attracts the most the brightest young people in many ways. When you bring them to your country, not all of them are going to continue, but some of them are going to stay there and do wonderful things, whether it's, you know, creating new companies, Google or something else, so that by, when you are a leader in in, in, in fundamental science, you inevitably attract the best young people, and, and, and it's good for the science, but inevitably some of them are also going to go off and do other things that are going to, dramatically potentially help your, your your economy as well. And I I, and I know Japan for a long time has been trying to make sure it's, it maintains or builds leadership. China right now is doing just that. That's why I'm kind of surprised that Yang or I would have thought China would be pushing to be the leader in the next new accelerator.
1: Uh, yes, and perhaps they will be. Uh, perhaps Yang has not won uh, that it, argument. It, uh, now, China is right now throwing money at at basic science yeah. and throwing it in often in very good directions. Mm. Uh, they have done some really successful work in looking for dark matter and mm. in, in, in studying neutrino properties at yeah. uh, Daya Bay uh, reactors. Reactor. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are working at using their scientists to develop new types of, of modular reactors that, that can be sold by China throughout the world. Uh-huh. Uh, so they have many plans. And uh, I was just told by Arthur Jaffe that there is in Shanghai a new fundamentally mathematics institute where $12 billion is promised over the nas- next five years, yeah. $12 Billion, billion dollars
0: it's amazing uh, if you're a, if you're a theorist in the united states and and not just in china and in korea you see you see not just one new institute but 50 new institutes yes, yes because i think i think uh this country realized that 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 promoting fundamental science has many many side benefits not least because after all it's i i, I never like the argument i don't like to pretend that particle physics is going to produce some new necessarily some new technology. I never think you always lead with the side benefits. But it, it is true that, and it's been known in this country, that the current gross national product, the current standard of living, was based on curiosity-driven research, a generational, not applied research. If you'd asked them to build better computers in the 1940s, they would have built cogs and wheels. Instead, we have the transistor. And so that, you know, fundamental curiosity-driven research is important in the long run for the health right now in the 21st and 22nd centuries of any technological country. And I'm worried a little bit in this country that that, that argument has sort of totally disappeared.
1: You're right. And it's, it's so much, let's say, 35% of our economy is based on quantum mechanics. Yeah, And quantum mechanics was invented by a bunch of... Uh, Young Turks uh, in Copenhagen in Germany who who got together and built the uh, the theories that uh, that we now depend upon. Of course, that didn't cost very much money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What we do now costs
0: a great deal of money. It costs money. There's but, less low hanging fruit. But, after all, you
1: know, one 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 battleship worth of of, of money will uh, support well, quite I a ca- lot of physics.
0: Well, you know, I I just tried to make this argument the other day and 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 I couldn't. I tried to get it published, but the purported wall that that hmm. Trump, the money w- w- was being asked for the wall, $8.6 billion, is bigger than the entire budget of the National Science Foundation. No, yeah, oh yes. And I think it's important when we ask ourselves, which is g- g- going to contribute more to the health, welfare, and security of our children in the long run? And it's a question that I think needs to be brought up. but I, I don't hear it discussed very much. Well, look, let's talk about the remaining, we talked about where, you know, we're building machines and, you know, I don't, again, I don't know if you want to venture where in particle physics you think the next break all through will happen. But cosmology is an exciting area, and we were just talking about, about a puzzle. Well, that, that, well,
1: and we need puzzles. and yeah. We have a puzzle in hand.
0: Yeah. Why don't you explain for a second?
1: Well, there is this thing called the, the uh, Hubble constant, uh, which was introduced by Mr. Hubble uh, back in 1929. And it it says that uh, the more distant uh, a galaxy is from us, the uh, faster it will be moving. And that that relationship is a linear relationship whose constant is the Hubble constant. And people have been trying to measure that for many, many years. And uh, some years ago there was a well-known discrepancy that some people got 50 and other people got 100 mm-hmm. in some units that we don't mm-hmm. have to discuss. With very small air well, that's Relatively small. <laughs> and now uh, things are uh, reaching the point where there uh, there is a whole series of experiments that have converged on a number which is about 72 yeah. and uh, plus or minus one or so. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 precisely determined. And then there's just one outlier, which lies at 68 or 67, as uh, I remember, which is quite a distance away from the other ones. And that's the one that comes from studies of the cosmic background radiation. Uh That's the only measure of the cosmological constant that measures the value of well, uh, no, Hubble the constant. Constant. of the Hubble constant, uh, yes, it's also mm. measured. <laughs> uh, of the Hubble constant at very early times. Yeah. And the, that one uh, measurement is in serious discrepancy with the... Uh, that, that's the problem that's been around for a couple of years. Yeah, uh, And what's just happened recently is a couple of new experiments, one given the absurd name, holy cow, <laughs> uh, are you familiar with that no, experiment?
0: No, oh, I, I, I didn't realize it had that acronym. No. Uh, yeah, that's
1: the. But what it, it has nothing to do with holiness yeah. or cows, but it has to do with quasars, uh-huh. and it has to do with the fact that quasars make multiple, uh, that galaxies make multiple images mm-hmm. of quasars, and mm-hmm. then you, instead of seeing the quasar as a point, you see it as five or six it's different point. points, yeah. and since quasar light fluctuates in mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. the fluctuations are seen. In these different images at different times.
0: Yes, I actually once wrote a paper about that. And yes,
1: but that's (laughs) what they've been doing, and they've been using that information uh, to measure the Hubble constant at the time of this uh, early, Uh, early uh, quasar. uh,
0: Yeah, which is, and I should say, quasars are objects that are incredibly distant, and therefore the light from those things has been traveling through most of the history of the universe. So when you measure this, you are measuring back into the history of the universe.
1: That's right, and and they're getting a different answer. They're confirming the mm-hmm. cosmic background radiation. And, and uh, the,
0: the puzzle there is that apparently, for some people, it means that the expansion rate of the universe was different at early times than it is now in a way that completely, if we're true, would completely confront uh, what, what is currently the standard model of cosmology, it, 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 which itself is kind of crazy. Uh, yeah, you know, it's always been,
1: well, in the olden days, we were told that the universe will either expand forever, getting more and more boring, or it will contract uh, and implode upon mm. itself in the future. And now what these uh, experiments are indicating, and there's another experiment mm-hmm. as well, yeah. uh, based on quasars as standard candles, which, yes. which also points in this direction uh, by some a couple of uh, Italian uh, physicists, scientists, that... Uh, they're telling us that the future of the universe will be neither of the above. It will be the great rip, yeah. where everything, including uh, you know, galaxies and stars and planets and people and atoms, will be ripped, ripped apart.
0: apart. Yeah. Well, and but in a finite time. But don't worry, not in a, not, yes, in, a, not a long, in a long long time. <laughs> long for now. I uh, I I remain highly skeptical. Of course, I will say it's always amusing to me maybe because I grew up in the era of that Hubble constant uncertainty, that was when I started, you know, when it was either 100 or 50, either both groups saying with high precision that it was 100 or 50. And at the time, a number of us bet, said if a lot of people think it's 100 and a lot of people think it's 50, it's probably around 75. And that remarkably turned out to be true. Neither group was right. It was right in the middle between the two. I I have to say, faced with the fact from a fundamental physics perspective it seems to me crazy <laughs> to think of this big rip there's no good physical picture i can, theory that i can think of that will make it I'm betting on the side of observational uncertainties. You're hoping maybe that 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 the craziness I, is yes, true. Yes,
1: and I, I'm going to right now bet you a bottle of fine wine that uh, f- fine in the eyes of the gifter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, that uh, they uh, it will turn out that uh, the cosmological constant is changing. Is the, ho- the uh, Hubble constant is changing? No, that the cos- well, well, and the, consequently, uh, that the, the cosm- cosmological constant, constant. is uh, is increasing.
0: I will take that bet here, recorded, <laughs> and I look forward to time when we can talk again, drinking that bottle of wine that you will have bought for me. Or vice versa. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Thanks again, Shelly. This was great. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lawrence. The
1: Origins Podcast is produced by Lawrence Krauss, Nancy Dahl, Amelia Huggins, John and Don Edwards, Gus and Luke Holwerda, and Rob Zepps. Audio by Thomas Amoson. Edited by Evan Diamond. Web design by Redmond Media Lab, animation by Tomahawk Visual Effects, and music by Rikulis. To see the full video of this podcast, as well as other bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash originspodcast.